My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Lorraine Hewlett, Shannon Moore, and Courtney Howard. Even as the climate crisis deepens and harsh consequences for billions of people edge ever nearer, indeed, for many they've already begun, the global oil industry has increasingly been switching to new methods of extraction that are more resource-intensive and even dirtier than conventional oil. The most spectacular of these unconventional sources is the tar sands in Alberta, but jurisdictions around the world have seen another new technique, horizontal hydraulic fracturing, or fracking. This reinvention of an older approach consumes massive amounts of fresh water, depends on injecting a toxic soup of compounds into rock formations, and is only beginning to have its health and environmental consequences studied. Some jurisdictions have banned it, temporarily or permanently, while others plunge ahead with it despite the poor understanding of consequences. Hewlett, Moore, and Howard are part of a coalition called Fracking Action North that brings together the organization's Alternatives North, Ecology North, the Northwest Territories Chapter of the Council of Canadians, and the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. FAN is working hard to ensure that the Northwest Territories enacts a moratorium on fracking, at least until a full, transparent, and public review of the process can be made. So far, there has been a limited amount of exploratory fracking in the territory, and with the recent drop in oil prices, none is currently ongoing. The group feels that makes this the right moment to enact a more formal pause, as studies of the practice gradually catch up with the technology. Studies that are increasingly showing that people's concerns about the practice are indeed well-founded. They speak with me about fracking and its consequences, about the challenges of organizing in the far north, and about their ongoing work to raise consciousness about fracking in the Northwest Territories. We spoke by Skype from Yellowknife. I'm Shannon Moore, and I've been helping out with Fracking Action North, just the general coalition, doing some event organizing and organizing to get the petition out there more. My name is Lorraine Hewlett. I'm the NWT chapter of the Council of Canadians. I'm the secretary. The NWT chapter of the Council of Canadians started about 18 months ago, and our primary focus is on the protection of water. We know that fracking often contaminate fresh water supplies and the water that is used in fracking operations cannot be cleaned and put back into the freshwater water cycle. So it's forever taken out of our supply of fresh water. And I've helped to organize two global frack down events in Yellowknife, so 2013 and 2014. My name is Dr. Courtney Howard. I'm an emergency physician in Yellowknife and a board member with the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. 
The Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, or CAPE, so C-A-P-E, is a national advocacy organization for physicians who are seeking to see policy lived in a way that maintains healthy environments and healthy people. Really, it comes at it through the lens of the social determinants of health. So we know that health is built up much more of things outside of the hospital than inside of the hospital. So physicians go to school for a long time to learn what to do in clinics and in hospitals to help their patients. But when we look really at what determines the overall health status of people, really a lot of that happens before they come to medical attention at all. So there are many social determinants of health. Those are things like income and housing and educational attainment. And one of those is the environment. CAPE seeks to take a look at the environmental determinants of health and do what we can to optimize them so that our populations are healthier overall. And I've been essentially providing uh, medical literature and support to the Fracking Action North group. So fracking technically is called hydraulic fracturing, and it's where in the effort to get either oil or gas out of a shale rock formation, there's a drill that drills down into the ground, and sometimes it can be a couple of kilometers, and then water and toxic chemicals are mixed together and injected at a very high pressure into the ground to force the oil and gas to the surface. One of the dilemmas, of course, with that is it also brings up methane, but that's the procedure. You might hear in some publications that fracking has been happening for decades. And they're right, it has been happening for decades, but it's been happening as conventional hydraulic fracturing where they go straight down, maybe a kilometer or so, and they do what Lorraine just described, which is blasting the fresh water mixed with these chemicals. But horizontal hydraulic fracturing, it goes down a little bit deeper, and by a little bit it could be an extra kilometer, and then it goes horizontally about the same distance. And that is just to maximize the area of rock and shale that you can get to. And that's called unconventional horizontal hydraulic fracturing. And yeah, it, it takes up a lot more water. The pressures are a lot more extreme than what we were seeing decades ago. So it has not had the time to be studied properly to understand the long-term impacts or even the short-term impacts. I mean, we only just saw a two-year study finish in New York State, and they've been fracking there, doing this method of fracking, the horizontal fracking, for a while, and they have just recently banned it. So as we're developing the right questions to ask, it's becoming more apparent that it's probably not a good thing to do until we can do it better, I'd say. Given the lack of studies, the lack of definite information on the impacts, what do we know for sure about fracking in terms of its impact on people and environments and communities and so on? And what do we not necessarily know for sure, but think is a plausible thing to be worried about? There have been enough documentaries done now that we know for sure that methane gets into drinking water supplies. It's unbelievable the number of documentaries where people right in front of the camera, will take out their barbecue lighter and set their tap water on fire, their well water on fire, the water that's in the slough, like where their animals will come to drink. And we know also people have testified that in some cases there's so much methane gas in their homes that they have had to evacuate their homes and leave them behind. So essentially people are becoming environmental refugees. So there are people in Canada who've had to leave their homes 
because their home has now become so toxic that they can no longer live there and nobody else can buy their property and their home and live there either. I think it's also important to note that communities that are being courted by companies such as Husky Oil and ConocoPhillips up here, they're being sold this idea that this is going to be an economic boom for them, that their children will have brighter futures, that it's the answer to their economic woes. And that being said, up here in the Northwest Territories, there are a number of examples of where this boom actually becomes bust with resource extraction. And they, being the government, just keep putting their eggs all in this basket of keep extracting hydrocarbons, just keep doing this because it's there without looking at the alternatives. So it's not just the fact that water may be contaminated, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, some of those sites aren't near communities at all. Well, that doesn't matter, though. It's that these communities that will be impacted socially, they're not taken into account that this isn't a forever industry. This isn't something that's sustainable. This is something that's for right now, and it could provide a lot of jobs in the short term. But what happens when those jobs leave? Will those communities, will those families be better off? And you can see that with any type of extractive industry that has set up in a town and left. So that's something else that should really be considered in this discussion. I'd just like to add as well that some other things we know for sure about fracking is it uses huge volumes of fresh water. It can use up to 700 toxic chemicals and loops that they make to inject into the ground. And we do know that people are getting sick. And maybe Courtney can speak more about that. From a health perspective, we're working from two points of view. As the others have pointed out, there's been very rapid technological process, and that has outpaced the rate of study. So that gave industry lead time to rapidly expand in the absence of anybody being able to say, okay, but wait a second, this study said X, Y, or Z. So some of those studies are now being done, and although conclusions are still early, because I read the other day that about 74% of the studies that have ever been done on fracking have been done in the last two years. So in communities like ours where the discussion started two years ago, really the situation and the evidence right now is completely different than it was then. So just in the last year or so, there's been multiple concerning studies done by Casatis et al., published in endocrinology. That was late 2013, noting the presence of endocrine receptor mimicking chemicals in river water downstream from fracking activities in the Colorado River Basin. Those are chemicals that actually have the ability to affect the human hormone system at very, very low concentrations, and that can have consequences for development. So they've actually been found now downstream from fracking activities in the Colorado River Basin at alarming levels. There's also been a study done by Macy et al. published in Environmental Health in 2014 that actually had a really interesting technique. They got people who live close to fracking operations, and, and this has been something that slowed down studies, is that some measurements are tough to take if you don't gain access to the exact fracking drill pad. And so if companies don't want you to do the study, they don't have to give you that access. And so that slowed down study. So this study had an interesting design because they actually gave buckets to people who lived adjacent to operations who had 
feeling health effects. And they said, okay, when you start to feel whatever symptom it had been that had been bothering them, whether it was headache or runny nose or nausea, or you smell that funny smell that's been bugging you, go over to the corner of your property that's closest to the fracking operation and open this spigot and the bucket. And the buckets were such that that would suck some air into them, and then they would close them off and send them to the lab for testing. So that very community-level study that was done in reaction to real-time health effects showed air concentrations of volatile compounds near oil and gas production, such as benzene, formaldehyde, and hydrogen sulfide, to frequently exceed health-based risk levels. So just in the last year or two, we're getting these medical studies that are confirming some of the fears that people have had. And really, it's a challenge to communicate those in communities where when the conversation started, they hadn't been done. And so the line that, you know, fracking is safe, fracking doesn't cause health problems. Two years ago, maybe there weren't any studies that said that there were concerns, but those are starting to come on board. And so really, it's our challenge to make sure that people are aware of those and that those enter the discussion now. There was another one that I should probably mention that showed that pregnant women living near natural gas development in rural Colorado were more likely to have babies with congenital heart disease and neural tube defects. And so that was done by uh, McKenzie et al. and published in Environmental Health Perspectives in 2014. So, you know, there's just rapid, rapid publication now. And it's the job of people like me, physicians who are following the literature, to make sure that that information ends up in the hands of community members who are active on this issue and who also directly tries to communicate them to policymakers myself. Tell me about the founding of Fracking Action North. Once the Council of Canadians had formed the NWT chapter and we had had our first global frackdown event in Yellowknife in 2013, we realized that day that we needed to bring people together in kind of an umbrella organization. So that first global frackdown event in Yellowknife, the participation in that event was quite phenomenal. Bill Erasmus, Dene National Chief, was there marching. His brother, George Erasmus, who's also been Dene National Chief, but also Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, was also there in the march. But had two parts. There was the actual march around the downtown area. And then after the march took place, there was also an education session where we watched a film about Rosebud, Alberta, where yet again another person could set their drinking water on fire, and where MLA Bob Bromley gave us a summary of what he learned on the tour that he took of the fracking field in North Dakota and in Saskatchewan, and where people expressed their deep concern It was like, what are we going to do? We know that fracking is hurting people, it's hurting the land, it's hurting the animals. So what are we going to do? What steps are we going to take to make sure that we and the NWT are kept safe from this technology and the ill effects that come with it? How are we going to effect some political change? And that was the impetus for forming Fracking Action North. So there are three groups involved. There's the Council of Canadians, Alternatives North, and Ecology North, and now Courtney's organization has joined as well. So the four organizations are trying to work together to put political pressure on our legislative assembly to get government leaders to understand that people are very concerned, 
there were letters written when another company, I believe it was Husky Oil, had proposed doing fracking. So people sent in letters to protest what was being proposed. MLA Bob Bromley was an absolute champion in the NWT Legislative Assembly as he spoke out often as the lone voice against fracking to try to educate fellow members of the Legislative Assembly, but more importantly to educate cabinet ministers who are in the position to make these kinds of decisions about the ill effects of fracking. There was a call for the formation of regulations for fracking because what was happening is the technology got ahead of the legislation. So companies were being allowed to do this exploratory fracking, but there were no regulations to guide what they were doing. And so there were calls for these regulations to be created. I think they're in draft format now, but as far as I'm aware, they have not been formalized and put into legislative effect. Tell me about the things that you've done to try and build information in the community, build consciousness in the community. So that's another thing that FAN really wants to address is this lack of information and lack of information on a community level. And it's not just an issue in Yellowknife. I'd call that the big lie because people who are in favor of fracking up in the Sawtooth near Norman Wells, they'll complain and say, well, it's just people in Yellowknife that are protesting. The reality and truth of the matter is, is that the Dene Nation at the Dene National Assembly in 2011 passed a motion against fracking. So that was two years before the Council of Canadians formed and before Fracking Action North formed. I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. One of the most difficult things was to try to form a communication link between Yellowknife, where these organizations are located, and people in the area where the fracking is taking place. So the effort to reach out were done through email, through phone calls. And the thing was, is people in the Satu needed to be given a voice. Because some people who were pro-fracking just assumed that everyone in the Sawtoo was okay with it. Once people in the Sawtoo felt that support from people in Yellowknife, then it became easier for them to voice their concern. And there was a young woman named Sheila Karkaji who almost single-handedly got a huge petition signed by people who lived in two or three different communities in the Sawtoo that are near Norman Wells where the fracking was taking place. Now, you might be interested to know that Sheila Karkaji actually received a death threat because of her political action and the concern that she was expressing about fracking and the effects that it would have on the land. Mm -hmm. So it became really tense for a while. She was basically told on the phone that, you know, if you don't shut up, we're going to do away with you. So she's a very, very courageous woman. So in spite of, you know, threats to her well-being, Sheila kept going. And then other other people became courageous enough to speak out as well. So there's been this great communication link that's going on now between Yellowknife, where FAN is located, and people in the Sawtoo who have these concerns, and sometimes they're finding it hard to express these concerns and made them be heard. And has your work also included focused attention to politicians, lobbying them, educating them, pressuring them? So last year we had a petition that was calling for putting any projects that were applying to do fracking in the Northwest Territories to go through an environmental assessment process. That garnered over 900 signatures 
and many letters from communities, not just people in Yellowknife, asking for this to go through, and it was ignored. This year, we have a new petition out, which is again going directly to the Legislative Assembly, asking our MLAs and representatives in government to hear us. And, you know, since they ignored the environmental assessment request, now that it's not going to have that extra layer of oversight, we're asking for a moratorium until there's a regional study completed, which will then provide a basis to start from to evaluate each project in terms of, you know, geographical location and hopefully bring in those issues of community and like social cultural impacts as well as environmental and health. There are a few MLAs in the legislature today that are concerned and are starting to speak up. And th that's very helpful. And it's very hopeful, too. It's, it's nice to know that there are politicians that are starting to listen, that we do need to sway a lot more. <laughs> One of our bigger problems is that there are a couple of politicians, including our territorial leader, Bob McLeod, he actually has traveled to the states promoting pipelines in the Northwest Territories, promoting this type of resource extraction industry. And we currently have the Minister of Industry, Tourism and Investment, David Ramsey. He's been quoted in a few different publications, industry publications, saying that fracking is the only option for a viable economy in the Satu. And, you know, I'm, I'm not living in the Satu. I do not belong to a small community there. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to hear from your politicians, hearing them say those things. It is definitely creating an environment of tension within these communities. It has to be. And we really do need these politicians to, to start listening, and we need them to start educating themselves. The people who live in the Satu have also been faced with the dilemma of having their own member of the Legislative Assembly, Norman Yakalaya, state publicly in the Legislative Assembly that the only way for the Satu to get out of poverty is to do fracking. What do you see coming up in the next six months or a year that Fracking Action North is going to be doing and going to be trying to achieve? Well, one of the things that Fracking Action North has succeeded in doing now is applying enough pressure that an environmental assessment has now been called for. The proposal that a fracking company has made to, I'll call it mine, White Point Beach. White Point Beach is a beautiful, beautiful area of fine, fine white sand, and apparently it's very high in silica. So there's a desire on the part of fracking companies to extract the sand from that area because of its high silica content and use it to shoot down fracking wells up in the Sawtooth. And there's been enough public pressure, enough letters written, enough said, that now a group that has the power to call for an environmental assessment has now done so. There will be another global frackdown event in 2015. I think it's scheduled for late October, early November. So we'll keep the pressure on there with the public protests in the streets. But in between now and then, there will be, you know, letters written to the editor about fracking. There will be more letters written to politicians about the need to give people a greater voice. The Yukon had a very large public consultation process about fracking. And people had an amazing opportunity to 
expressed their concerns. And the NWT hasn't had that similar kind of process yet. So there's now, because of the pressure put on politicians by Fracking Action North and its affiliated groups, we're now getting pressure being put on cabinets in the Legislative Assembly by members of the Legislative Assembly to open this up, do it right, allow people to have a voice, do the public consultation necessary. Don't just barge ahead, plow ahead with this kind of technology without examining it. You know, what are the long-term health effects? What are the short-term health effects? How is this going to affect our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren? As for events with Fracking Action North, our current petition is our main focus, calling for the moratorium of the industry until there's been enough information gathered, so a regional study. And it's also calling on our MLAs and our politicians up here to start looking at investing in alternative energy resources. If you find yourself up in Yellowknife, you may see us. Uh, a few wonderful volunteers from Fracking Action North hanging out around some key areas downtown asking for your participation and your signature. Other than that, we're just going to keep doing public education. I think that's all the questions that I have. Is there anything else that you think is important that we haven't touched on? I just want to mention that this is all happening, of course, in the context of climate change. Yellowknife is already over two degrees Celsius more than it was in pre-industrial times, and that's having really big consequences for population, including our Aboriginal population. So if you look at whose health status is going to be affected by climate change, we're right on the front line. We have a lot of people up here who still live off the land who depend on hunting and fishing for part of their food security because food's so expensive up here. And the reduction in reliability of ice travel not only makes ice travel more dangerous and makes them more susceptible to injury from it, but also means that the food in their house isn't as healthy as it has been previously. There's also more and more studies coming out showing that there's major mental health impacts from this. The land is such a significant part of culture up here that when its behavior changes, it can create feelings of anxiety and depression for people. When ice road travel becomes difficult and people can't even, you know, take their skidoo out on the lake, they get trapped into these communities that are fly-in only and can't connect with their relatives in other communities, can't participate in the activities they really like to do. And so that creates mental health issues. And so that means that fossil fuel extraction here has this additional layer of meaning on it that we can't ignore the way maybe people with less climate change-related impacts can. Part of our job is to also help connect the fracking, the realization of the fact that it can potentially contribute to a problem that our population is at particular risk of ill health from. Part of our challenge is to bring that into the conversation. As a doc working up here, you know, in the developed world, we're really on the front lines of the health effects from it. There's a lot of public education to be done to help people understand that, like the Lancet has called climate change the biggest health threat of the 21st century, and the BMJ has too, the World Health Organization, you name a medical organization. They're saying doctors get out there and make this clear to people, because right now there's a massive communication gap. You have been listening to my interview with Lorraine Hewlett, Shannon Moore, and Courtney Howard of Fracking Action North. To learn more about their work, go to frackingactionnorth.ca. That's all one word, frackingactionnorth.ca. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 